resurrection. Let's get our Bibles out. Open to Ephesians chapter 5, page 1346, I believe, in the Pew Bible in front of you. Ephesians 5. We are in the second week of our conversation about marriage. Hopefully you have a listening guide with you. I apologize for the crowded nature of the listening guide this morning. We just have a lot to communicate, and I wanted you to be able to take this home with you, so we'll fill in these blanks today as we go through. I um, know that these little opportunities we have in between our uh, studies through books of the Bible are opportunities for us to really just uh, the Lord to minister to our congregation in specific and special ways and I felt for some time that the Lord really was impressing upon my heart that we have some conversations about marriage. It's so very important. If you think about this topic of marriage, you will quickly realize, uh, reading through the Bible, that the Bible starts with a marriage in the Garden of Eden, and it ends with a marriage in the book of Revelation. And it's uh, the story of a God who loves his people, his creation in such a way, and through his reconciliation uh, of overcoming our sin, he creates an environment where we might know him in a relationship that he, he uses to illustrate on earth through the relationship of marriage. And so that's why it's so important for us to have these conversations. And whether you are uh, looking to get married in the future, whether you are currently married, whether your marriage is going great, or whether in the stillness of your heart you're worried that your marriage is maybe in trouble, all of us need to hear this today. And certainly all of us, you cannot walk long in the body of Christ and not have opportunity to... Uh, counsel people, to encourage people, to have conversations with folks about marriage. It is uh, always uh, something that needs our attention. So let's pray today and ask the Lord's blessing on the reading of His Word, and then we'll talk about this important subject for just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for this morning, and we are grateful for Your Word. We want to say thank You for giving us these words from your mouth that are for us. Lord, we, we want to receive what you have to say today. God, we recognize that oftentimes our flesh is in opposition to the things that you desire to say. And Lord, certainly this morning, God, as our minds want to uh, run rampant with excuses or reasons why things are different in our specific situations, Lord, we need your help. We need your help to just have ears to hear, to sit and receive from you. And Lord, to know that you love us and your desire is for our best. And so thank you for what you'll do today. We commend and give you praise and glory for it in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read a passage in Ephesians 5. If you'll read with me, we're going to begin in verse 25. Here Paul is really giving us his most extensive uh, teaching on the topic of marriage. And if you were reading through Ephesians 5, you would notice that this discussion that we'll read comes right on the heels of, of a, a conversation that he's having with, the Lord is having with us about walking in wisdom and redeeming our time. And I think it's a good 
way to sort of set the, the stage for what we'll talk about today, to think about what we want to do is we want to redeem our time. We don't want to neglect the things that are going on around us, but we want to, we want to pay attention and walk circumspectly. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, the scripture says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing and water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband." And what I want you to understand is that these words are being spoken into a culture where there is nothing that I can do. There is no, I don't have a vocabulary, I don't have adjectives uh, sufficient enough to describe to you the shocking nature of what I just read to the original hearers. You, you could only in your wildest imagination imagine an environment where women were regarded only as useful, merely as property, where in a marriage relationship, although they would use the term marriage that we use, it would be unrecognizable to any of us in this room. A woman in this time had no rights whatsoever. Her husband would, would not even look to her for companionship or friendship. He would not look to her for physical satisfaction. He would look outside of the marriage for all of those things. They were accepted and promoted. A wife was merely a vehicle to provide children to continue a legacy and to run and operate a household. Uh, just understanding that in... Ephesus, where these words first landed, uh, temple prostitution was running rampant, and uh, sexual immorality was uh, so uh, ingrained in everything that was going on. And yet, the Lord comes into that context and starts talking about Husbands loving their wives as Christ loved the church and, and wives being submissive to their husbands and the two of them together uh, working for their own good and the glory of God. It's just absolutely unbelievable. And that's the context that these words come originally in. And yet in some ways, they're radical today, aren't they? They're radical in the culture in which we live today. And that's a, a great source of heartache for so many of us. You see, to do what the Bible says regarding marriage and family, we're going we're gonna to need help. We're going to have to understand from the 
from the beginning, we're going to have to just confess in our spirit that in order to even begin to dive into what the Lord has said about this relationship, we're going to be seen as radical and countercultural. We are, even to the, the, the places that maybe before this morning you didn't understand some of the things that uh, I just read, and you've read them time and time again and wondered to yourself, uh, what, what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, it is radical. And what I'm about to say uh, right now is radical. I think the first thing that you need to understand, that every person in this room needs to understand, certainly every married person in this room, but certainly every, I just hope and pray that the young people in this room, that in their hearts just believe and know and desire to one day be married, would just grasp some of what I'm saying and what a difference it would make in your life. But the first principle that I want you to know about what Paul is saying here is that what's clear is that we were designed to have another lover. We are designed to have another lover. Now don't get nervous on me. Some of you are going to... Some husbands were like, what? Hey, what, what, what do you say? Some wives are like... Uh, Listen, would you agree with the statement, you can't give what you haven't received? You can't give something you haven't received. You, you, can't, you, can't, you can't explain, give, you can't embody something that you've never experienced because you, you don't know it. And so, when the Scripture says... For example, in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for her. The Scripture is saying, Husbands, you love your wives as Christ loved you. You cannot love your wife as Christ loved you unless you've been loved by Christ. you got to have another lover to even approach anything the Scripture says about marriage. You can't even begin to understand a statement like this Unless you know the love of Christ. You have experienced the love of Christ. There's, we would all agree with that. But we would never think in terms of we were designed to have another lover. But that's exactly what the Bible says. In John chapter 13, the scripture says in verse 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. You see? That the command to love in the scripture is to love the way God loved us. There's no way we can even approach anything the Bible says about love unless we have been loved by God, unless we've received that love, unless we know that love. Then we can begin to at least uh, process in our minds what it would be like for us to give that love to another. You see, what what Paul says in Ephesians 5.25, what Jesus is saying in John chapter 13, is that this word love that we commonly use as a noun is really a verb. It's not a noun at all. It's a, it's a verb. In other words, love is not something that you find contrary to 
what all the romantic uh, novels and movies of our day would try to teach us. It is not something that you find. It's something that you do. Notice, the Scripture never says, go out and find love, does it? No. Why? Because that doesn't make any sense. That's something that we've made up. That's some understanding of love that Hollywood is, has propagated. And so, really, I think the way to understand love in, in the beginning is to say this. We do not feel our way into acting, but we act our way into feeling. See, love is a noun after it's been a verb. But it's not... It's never only a noun. So you will act your way into feeling. So when someone says, well, I just don't, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm in love anymore. I don't feel. And so what's the solution? How do you solve that? Well, your problem is not what you feel. Your problem is what you're doing. If you do what love requires, your feelings will follow your actions. And so we're designed to have another lover. Let me give you another principle. We are from the beginning not just created in the image of God, but designed to commit. That it's in us to be people who commit. Committing to things is not some foreign concept. It's not, we often think about Commitment is something we have, to, we have to rally our internal strength for. And we, you know, so, so we can do other things uh, that, that, are, that Christ does in us and we rely on His power for. But when it comes to committing, that's just something we need to do. You need to just commit to this. Well, let me explain something to you. You do need to commit to things, but, but this ability, desire, and capacity to commit originates from being created in the image of the God who is the ultimate, the ultimate one of commitment. Notice what the Scripture says in verse 31 of Ephesians 5. Referring back to the first wedding in the Garden of Eden in Genesis, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, have you ever considered... What could God have said regarding marriage that would have made it more, more of a commitment than two people becoming one flesh? How could God have spoken of marriage? Is there any other terminology that He could have used that would have created a stronger bond than to say these two people are going to leave their previous relationships and are going to join into this commitment and become one flesh. You're going to become the same person. This is why Paul's talking about earlier in Ephesians 5 about how when, when a man loves his wife, he loves himself. Doesn't that sound strange? Well, not if you understand what the Scripture's saying about us being one flesh when we're married. And you see, the only way we can make a commitment like this is to know a God who... In other words, so... You're saying, okay, I'm designed to commit, all right? So from the beginning, God's intention for us were to be people who were able to make and keep commitments. Yes, 
Now, how do I do that? The same way you love. The same way. You begin by having a relationship with a God who has made and kept commitments to you. Romans chapter 8, the scripture says, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels or principalities or powers nor things present or things to come or height or depth or any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, that is a relentless commitment. That is a commitment that nothing will ever be able to separate you from the God who has committed to holding you. You see, the Scripture doesn't paint a picture of you holding on to God. It paints the picture of a God who's got such a grip on you that nothing can separate you from God. Understanding that will help you then begin to understand how to fulfill key commitments in your own lives. Yes, that's the whole, that's what motivates us forward. That's what propels us in the right direction with regards to commitment. Let, let me show you a beautiful Old Testament passage that drives this home. And there are many that I could have chosen. And they're all equally as vivid and graphic and wonderful. But in Ezekiel chapter 16, there's a there's a a story. There's a, a picture of a baby. A baby on the day of its birth. This baby's a little girl. This little girl was born, and the scripture says, left forsaken. And this little newborn, on the first day of its life, is laying on the side of a road in its own blood with its umbilical cord uncut, helpless, and perishing. And here's what the Scripture says about this, this baby. Verse 6, And the Lord says, When I passed by and I saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. Yes, I said to you in your own blood, Live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew and you matured and you became beautiful and your breasts were formed and your hair grew, but you were naked and bare. Verse 8, so when I passed by you again, indeed your time was the time of love, so I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you and you became mine, says the Lord God. Then I washed you in water. Yes, I thoroughly washed off your blood and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you in embroidered cloth and gave you sandals of badger skin. I clothed you with fine linen. I clothed you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments. I put bracelets on your wrists and a chain around your neck. And God begins to tell this story about this little girl who was forsaken. And he begins to speak of this girl as his wife. But what kind of, what kind of wife is she? God's wife. Is she a good wife? Is she a faithful wife? Is she the kind of wife that you would imagine if somebody was going to have a good wife, it was going to be God, right? 
No, God's wife was not faithful. Verse 15. But you trusted in your own beauty. You played the harlot because of your fame and poured out your harlotry on everyone passing by who would have it. Now, as painful as that would seem from a perspective of of a husband, it gets personally devastating. In verse 17, the Lord says, And you have taken your beautiful jewelry from my gold and my silver, which I had given you, and you made for yourself male images, and you played the harlot with them. You took your embroidered garments and you covered them, and you set my oil and my incense before them. Now, what would God do? What would this God who created us to be people of of commitment, what would he do in response to this horrible unfaithfulness and this horrible personal devastation that his bride inflicts back upon him? What would his response be? And at the end, in verse 60, the Lord says, Nevertheless, I will... Remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. We're made in the image of the God that spoke those words. You see, inside of us, we are designed by God to be people who can make and keep Commitment. Because we are made in the image of a God who is the ultimate commitment keeper. I mean when it is brutally hard. When, when the, the one that you've committed to is personally devastating. When you have done everything that you can do. When you feel like the martyr if ever there was one. When, when, when it's so one-sided in a relationship that there's absolutely no contest on the other side. And yet, God keeps His commitment. Ladies and gentlemen, we were made in the image of that God. What does that mean? How have we fallen so far from that standard? What lies could we have believed along the way? What things could have crept into our hearts and our minds that have created an environment where commitment is good as long as you're pulling your share of the load? Commitment will endure so long as things are working in my own estimation. But if you hurt me, if you disappoint me, if you slack off on me, then I'm out. I think in the beginning of the journey, so many of us started with this idea that, as we talked about last week, why would we even get married? It's such a crazy concept to begin with.
I've never kept a friend all my life. I've really never kept anything all my life. I change every year. My tastes change. My, my understanding of things changes. And yet somehow, in, in all of the reality of all of that, there was, no, there, was no, there was no law saying that I had to do so. I had the freedom to choose yes or no. And yet some, for some reason, as a young man, I had this desire within me to spend the rest of my life with one person. That's... That's a strange thing, isn't it? And I think that it's immediately after that that trouble sets in. Just the next millisecond. We start thinking things. We bring things into that relationship and into that environment that we, we really didn't even know were there. there but until... Maybe times like now, looking back and realizing, I really did think that. Why did I believe that? Let me give you an example. As I'm looking at this text in Ephesians 5, I'm, I'm thinking to myself over and over and over about how many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times I've sat and looked across a table at a husband and wife in trouble. And whatever they were saying, whatever unique circumstances and challenges and situations were going on in that relationship, the one thing that I'm hearing consistently is underneath it all, there's this thread woven through that's saying, you know, I really thought that when I got married, that my spouse was going to meet all of my emotional needs. Where did we get that idea? Where would we even get the idea that there's such a thing as a person, a human being that could meet all of our emotional needs? Prior to getting married, nobody ever met all your emotional needs. You wouldn't want anybody to have met all your emotional needs. But somehow in the in the throes of this marriage relationship, in the culture in which we live, and all of the, the things that are colliding in our head, we, we get lost in that. And we start thinking about, hmm, well, this needs not being met, and that needs not being met. And, and instead of saying, well, of, of course it's not. How unhealthy would I be if I expected my children to meet all my emotional needs? How bizarre would it be if, 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 a, if an adult person expected his mother or father to meet all his emotional needs? How, how, how deranged would you be if you thought you're a relationship at work or, or a friendship would meet all your... You need serious therapy. Serious. But when it comes to a spouse... We just slowly move our disappointments into this camp where it's like. And here's what happens. When they don't meet all our emotional needs, which they never could and were never intended to, we immediately 
feel like someone who's been robbed. We, there's, there's an injustice. And as soon as we get into this, uh, this environment and this relationship where there's an injustice and where we've been robbed, we have made the devastating decision to put ourselves in a position of a victim. Devastating. Almost never does a couple come in for marital counseling. And it's not instantly and initially apparent who sitting in the room with me feels like the victim. When you and your spouse disagree, when you even fight and argue, when you're mad... You feel like a victim, don't you? And when you put yourself in a position of a victim, you have made a horribly devastating decision. Now, understand, there are situations and circumstances where you could be a victim, but those are not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about uh, physical, sexual abuse. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about relational, looking for the emotional needs in the, in the course of your relational existence together as husband and wife. And so what happens when you start feeling like a victim, when you start dwelling on the injustice? Well, then you begin to look around. You begin to, to for the, maybe for the very first time, really understand why is coveting so high on God's list well so you're you're looking around and you're starting to look at other people and what you subconsciously start doing is you're looking for someone who's going to meet the emotional needs that aren't being met that this person is going to be more capable more qualified to meet my emotional needs and so I'm going to start looking for them but but they don't exist they don't exist and it's just going to bring more pain. Oh, yeah, there'll be this, you know. Everyone who believed that the grass was greener on the other side of the fence got over there, and initially it seemed like it was, but eventually you realize you were eating the same grass you were eating before. So has God called us to something impossible? Sometimes it feels that way. And what I want you to know is that he hasn't called us to something impossible, but he has called us to something. And what we need to do is spend the rest of our time this morning talking about what that something is, what it looks like, and how to do it. And if we can just break that one truth and reality down, then I think we can leave here so much better equipped to move forward. What emotional needs has God called a husband to meet in a wife's life? And what emotional needs has God called a wife to meet in a husband's life? Because certainly it wouldn't be true if I said, well, no, your spouse isn't to meet any emotional needs in your life. Well, that wouldn't be right. So it's not all, but it's not none. It's somewhere in the middle. So what is it? What emotional needs... Are we to meet in each other's lives so that we can do that and only that and focus on just simply that? 
Well, there's a couple specific needs. And if these needs are ignored, there will be certain and utter distress and trouble. I've never seen a situation ever in my life where these specific directive needs were ignored and it didn't cause suffering in the marriage. Look at what Paul says in verse 33 of Ephesians 5. When he gets to the end, he says, Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, the key to understanding this is in particular. That what Paul is saying here as a summary statement to everything that he said before is in particular. That he's saying a particular things to wives and he's saying a particular thing to husbands. And what he's saying to husbands, he's not saying to wives. And what he's saying to wives, he's not saying to husbands. He's not saying the same thing to both of them. He's not saying here's the things that you both need to meet in each other's lives. No, he's saying in particular, these are the things that you need to know and understand. Husbands, you in particular, are to love your wife. Wives, you in particular, are to respect your husband. Now, there's tons of research out there. I mean, I've got probably at least 10 books in my office just on this one topic. On this one issue. There are study after study after study that will... Uh, confirm that secular studies that will show exactly what the scripture is saying here is exactly the way men and women operate and relate to one another and feel. One in particular, uh, a group of researchers, they, they interviewed 400 men and 400 women separately. And they asked them the same question. They said, would you rather A, go through life alone and unloved or would you rather go through life inadequate and disrespected by people? You have to choose option one or option two. Alone and unloved or inadequate and disrespected. Three out of every four men said Hey, I'd rather be alone and unloved. Anything but being disrespected and inadequate. Women, on the other hand, three out of four, the exact opposite. They said, well, no, without even thinking about it. I don't want to be alone and unloved. I don't care anything about inadequate or disrespected compared to alone and unloved. You see, but here's the question. I think we all sort of know that that's true. We all sort of know that that's the way we are. But here's where it breaks down. How do we do that practically? My conversations with people over the years have always yielded, when I start talking about this, that when I look at men and I say, now, how exactly do you intend to love your wife? They look at me like, you know, a cow looks at a new gate. They're... Uh, Was that there yesterday? You know, like when I come home and my wife says, what's different? Uh, 
I mean, you're doomed at that point, right? I mean, I've never guessed the right thing. Never. Uh, I don't know, honey. You're extra beautiful today. But when I look at women and I say, well, how do you respect your husband? How do, I mean, what does that look like? What specific things would you do? I'm not really sure. I'm not sure what that means. And then uh, on the women's side, a lot of times they have... Men are usually clueless. Women, on the other hand, usually have very damaging and maybe even devastating ideas about what that might look like that are unhealthy and unbiblical. So let's talk for a minute. How do men show love to their wives? How specifically do men show love to their wives? Wives, you if you've been married over... Six months, then you've already come to the realization that loving you, showing you love, you know, not loving you the way we understand love, but showing you love the way you understand love is not natural to us. We don't innately know how to do this. I've never met a man that just innately knew how to do this. Never. It's not intuitive at all. First of all, Understand she wants to be close. Understand that proximity is very important to her. Understand that she wants you close to her. She likes for you to hold her hand. She wants you to sit next to her. She wants you to hug her. She likes it when you're affectionate. She likes for you to spend time alone with her. Closeness, together. Focus on her. It's important. Proximity shows love to most wives. Secondly, understand she wants openness. She wants you to share with her what's going on in your life. I mean, I, I can't even help but smile when I say this. It's so unnatural to us. I cannot even imagine, you know, how insanely clueless I would be if I didn't have the Scripture to guide me in this area. Never am I with my friends and I share my feelings. I just don't do that. I get married... And suddenly now I'm in a relationship with someone who wants me to share my feelings. Well, that's going to take some, some work, some effort. we got to understand that. She wants to know about your day. She wants you to share about that. And she, she likes it when you ask for her input. Oh, if only you could have seen Lisa and I going over these yesterday. It was spectacular. <laughs> it was spectacular. Finally, I looked at her and said, Honey, that's all the input I need. I got enough. I said, What other ways can a man show openness? She looked at my, she looked at my notes and said, 
ask for her input. Got it. Ask for your input. <laughs> really, that's for me. I'm just sharing that with you all, but that was mine. Okay? Thirdly, understand she wants understanding. Stop trying to always fix her problems. Listen to her. Listen to what she's saying. With your mouth shut and your eyes faced to her, try to connect with how she's feeling about what she's telling you. Understand that you're innate desire is to fix and it's not that your fixing is always unwelcome or unwarranted it's just that you need to be patient before you you get to there she wants to express we want to fix she wants to express she wants understanding it takes patience you know that to understand See, I just want the end. I don't want all the details. I am a, I'm not a good phone talker. I mean, if I'm on the phone, I'm very utilitarian about the phone. You know, if I call you, I got a question. You know, hi, how are you? Sometimes I even skip that and just get to the question. And then I'm waiting for the answer. And then I'm like, well, praise the Lord. I'll see you later. Goodbye. And that's sort of the way I work on a telephone. Now, if there's a crisis in your life, then I got all day. And I'm wired to just listen to that and take that in, okay? But in a non-crisis situation, details just make me nuts. They just make me nuts. So, if I call my wife and I want to know what's for dinner... See, rookie mistake, don't even do that. But if I were to make that rookie mistake, which I've done many times, and so I call her, hey, honey, how are you? Now, I haven't even got to what's for dinner. When I say, how are you, she starts telling me how she is. She's telling me how she was this morning, how it was going in between that, how it is now, what's been going on, who she's talked to, what they talked about. The people that she's passed on the road today, how the weather's going, what the dog's doing, how the neighbors are faring, what's going on with their mom, and then eventually back around to, and so, so what was it you wanted to know? Well, I was wondering what was for dinner. Then, that's a whole nother, com- I'm going, never mind, I'll be home in a minute. I mean, it's just, but here's the thing, she wants me to understand, Right? And so I need to learn to understand those things. And I can't understand if I don't listen to the details about whatever it is that she's communicating to me. Fourthly, understand that she wants to know that you're committed to her. You see, for men, loyalty is important, but it's assumed. And so when I say committed, I'm going past, we're we're assuming loyalty. We got that. But the fact that this issue of being committed, it's got to be 
reiterated over and over in a variety of ways. Be involved or take interest in things that are important to her. You see, that communicates commitment. Don't say that you're committed. Do things that show you're committed. Be involved in what's important to her. Take time and interest in those things. Be intentional about the way that you speak to or about other women, and especially the way that you look at them. Nothing will hinder your wife's heart in this area of her desire to want to know that you're committed to her is if you are lackadaisical in your interaction with other people of the opposite sex. Don't make excuses for it. Don't use the term uh, accidental or it's just the way it is or it's how I am or anything else. No, that's... You're violating and damaging a place in her heart by not being very intentional and conscious about that area. And lastly, understand that she wants you to cherish her. You see, you show her love when she feels safe and protected. But it's more than just sort of in physical provision of things. It's little things like opening the door for her or carrying heavy things or, you know, just being protective over her, making sure that you are uh, intentional about uh, the way that your children speak to her, that they honor her with their tone and with their words, and that it's not her having to tell them, but it's you on her behalf. And certainly the words and tone that anyone else may use. So if you can do those things, you would at least be on the road to ensuring that your wife felt that you loved her. I think it's a good starting point. I think, I think if we were to ask the ladies in the room, you know, how does that sound? Is that a good starting place? Is that something that would uh, make your heart feel loved? And that you'd begin to, uh, certainly your marriage relationship would improve if those things were intentionally a part of your life. Amen, sisters. See, even in that, she doesn't want to hurt your feelings. Now, how do women show respect for their husbands? When we were, when I was preaching through the book of Colossians in the early part of last year, and some of you maybe missed it or need to go back and, and listen to that, it was the 10th sermon in that Colossians series where I dealt in depth with this issue of submission. And so if you miss that, it would be very profitable for you to go back on the internet, look, go to the website, and pull that sermon up and listen to it because I went into great detail about 
what it means to submit to your husband and husbands submit to your wives. And I remember for several weeks after that sermon, I had people coming up to me over and over and over and just saying, thank you so much for clearing that up. And, and my, I told you in the beginning of that sermon, I said, I hope that after today, whenever you, uh, someone says open to Ephesians 5 or open to the book of Colossians and you hear the word of God say, wives, submit to your husbands, you don't cringe. You shouldn't cringe at that. It's just that when you cringe, you don't understand that. Okay, how do women show respect to their husbands? First of all, appreciate his desire to work and to achieve. Appreciate that. Tell him that you appreciate the work that he does when when he does it. Understand that so much of, most of the time, an unhealthy proportion of, A man's self-worth and self-esteem comes from what we do for a living. And so it is an area that he is very sensitive about. And and a lot of who he is and his identity oftentimes is wrapped up in what he does. And so appreciate that. I would say without an instant of hesitation that one of the absolute keys to my success in ministry has been Lisa's ability to do this. She is always my greatest fan. She is always my staunchest supporter, always. No one has ever believed in me ever more than my wife has. There are these moments when I can recall her telling people, uh, what a, what a great leader I am. What a, what, a, what a great Christian I am. What a, a husband I am. And when I hear her say that, I don't know what it means to the person who's hearing it, but in that moment, I could run through a brick wall for her without even thinking about it. It means so much to a man when you appreciate his desire to work and to achieve. If, if she didn't do anything else, that one thing has meant so much and propels me in my, my times of weakness or doubt or struggle. I, I remember back that, that there's somebody who, who never looks at a challenge and doesn't think her husband can't do it. That's an amazing and wonderful gift. And only you, wives, can give that to your husband. Secondly, appreciate his desire to protect and provide. Express to him what it means to you. When we, we, men need to hear that, that you recognize that, that his protection of you and that it's important to you. Praise him whenever possible for his provision. Please be very, very careful not to put down his job or how much money he makes. Don't do that. No matter how annoyed you may be, no matter how much you want to return hurt for hurt, don't do that. Appreciate his desire to protect and provide. Thirdly, 
Appreciate his desire to serve and to lead. Tell him how much you appreciate him being there for you to be able to lean on. Recognize and and praise him when he makes good decisions. Try to be gracious towards him when his decisions aren't so good. Try to be gracious. You know, even, even when I don't make the decision I maybe ought to have made, I can remember my wife saying things to me like, well, you know, that didn't work out maybe the way you intended, but, you know, so many times in the past you've always gotten it right and you, you can't expect to always get it right. She always will find a way to encourage me even in my failure. You see? Disagree with him. There's nothing wrong with that. But do it in private, not public, whenever possible. It's just hurtful. It's hurtful to a man to be corrected. Some of you I hurt when I hear your wife correct you or put you down. It hurts me because I know it hurts. Honor him in front of your children. Fourthly, appreciate his desire to analyze and to counsel. Be grateful to him for the advice that he gives. You know, he's giving advice, and maybe that's not what you wanted, but he is giving advice, and he, he's giving advice because he is trying to help. And so try to be understanding about that. That's his way of showing that he cares. We communicate our care and love so oftentimes by advice and fixing, and be grateful for that and receive it and understand what we're trying to do when we do it. Work to understand that we're oftentimes fixers. And we don't mean it to seem or be at all insensitive. That's not our purpose. Lastly, appreciate his desire for physical intimacy. I thought at least one dummy would amen right there. (laughs) Ladies, just know that men and women are wired differently. You know that. We all know that. Just obey the Bible in this area of your life. There are so many pitfalls right here that we don't even have time to get into. But I will say this one thing. Never, ever let your physical relationship become a tool that you use to manipulate or get your way. Never. It is one of the most devastating things that can creep into a relationship. Do not let that happen. I think as men we'd say, you know, it's certainly not an exhaustive and complete list, but it's it's a place where if as wives you would embrace these things, fully knowing that some of these things you're probably better at than others, Identify the place where 
you would be the weakest, have a conversation this afternoon with each other about these two lists and, and talk about them honestly and openly and, and have a plan moving forward. But you see, it's just that's the practical application. That's the way you would begin the process of, of utilizing this, uh, the, this God-given principle of love and respect. But you see, the problem isn't just in understanding what the emotional needs that God called us to, to, to supply in each other is. The solution's not even in, in knowing and harnessing the practical way to make it work. I already know, and most of you in the room already know, what the big challenge is walking out of here this morning. The problem is, is that women who don't feel loved, your tendency is to react to that by disrespecting your husband. Men who don't feel respected by their wives, their tendency is to not be loving towards them. And so this is what creates what I call the merry-go-round of doom. Well, I'm not loving towards her because she's disrespectful towards me. I'm not respectful towards him because he's not lovable towards me. And around and around it goes. He's not, he's not providing my need, and so therefore I don't have any motivation to provide his. And there we go around and around, and nothing will ever come except for pain and heartache and doom. So if we're going to get anywhere, could we suffice it to say, somebody in the relationship's got to go first, don't they? Somebody's got to be willing to say, well, I'm going to do what God called me to do. I'm going to commit like God created me to commit, and I'm going to walk in the reality of what it is, regardless of what happens. Now, that's easy to say, but it's a lot more difficult to pull off. If you could take these principles that I've laid out and if you could make the, 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 the cry of your heart or maybe the mission statement of your marriage be, in my marriage, I need to focus on my responsibilities rather than my rights. If you would say to yourself, from here forward, I'm going to devote myself, I'm going to commit myself to focusing on my responsibilities and not my rights. It will keep you out of the pit of putting yourself in a position of a victim and getting into this cycle of all the emotional needs that aren't being met, most of which God never called your spouse to meet in the first place. But just focus on responsibilities, not rights. You see, when you go in to see your doctor and it's time for your annual checkup, and your doctor has a conversation with you about your health. That conversation has nothing to do with rights, does it? What is the doctor telling? He's saying, now, this is what you need to do. You need to start eating better. You need to lower your cholesterol. You need to do this. You need to do that. Because you have a responsibility to yourself. And if you don't do this, there's going to be consequences, right? Well, but then we turn around in this marriage relationship 
And it becomes this conversation about rights. But wait a minute. God said you're one flesh. The conversation that you're having about your marriage relationship is the same conversation you're having with your doctor about yourself. We're not talking about, we're talking about you. It's a responsibility. You and you alone have a responsibility to care for yourself. And yourself is your spouse because you're one flesh. And so if you, if you hurt her or if you hurt him, you hurt who? Yourself. But we start having a legal proceeding. If you, if you, if you went down to the courthouse tomorrow and you filled out all the paperwork and filed a lawsuit and you submitted the paperwork and the clerk at the courthouse said, now, who are you suing? And I said, well, I'm suing this scoundrel, Tony Carnes. Well, who are you? Well, I'm Tony Carnes. Well, isn't that what we do in our marriage? You're having a legal proceeding against yourself. Against yourself. Now, is it true that I always take the right responsibility with myself? No. Do I always? Like when I go in to see my doctor, does he go, man, you are you're, you're like the, you're the healthiest person I've ever met. Does he say that? No, he doesn't say that. He always says, has Lisa been out of town? I go, why do you ask? He knows. She's probably been calling it. She's like, every time I go out of town, you wouldn't believe what he eats. I'm like, it's not that bad. The last time she went out of town, I was hungry. So I went to Dollar General because everybody knows everything he needs at Dollar General. So I went to Dollar General. I thought, what am I going to have for dinner? And I thought, I know, a giant box of Captain Crunch. That'd be awesome. So I got a box of Captain Crunch and a gallon of milk, and I went home, and I had dinner. And, and as I was shopping, I could hear her voice saying, you need to eat fruits and vegetables. So I got Crunch Berries. <laughs> Amen. And I went home and ate the whole box, and then I shoved it way down the garbage can, so when she came home, she didn't see the box. Because I'm the man of my house. So here's the point. Do I always live up to the responsibilities of myself? Well, no. No one does. So then why are you filing a lawsuit against the other part of yourself when they don't come up to their responsibilities? It's kind of hypocritical, isn't it? Well, sure it is. It's not a legal proceeding. It's a conversation within a relationship. So did you notice what the key words, the prevailing words there were? Let me just try to sum this up for you. You might write this in the margin of your, your uh, listening guide. Because there's a tendency to say, well, I'll respect my husband when he deserves respect. Well, that's not what the Bible said. The Bible didn't say when your husband deserves respect, you respect him. The Bible never said you're the one who's the discerner and expert of what's respectable. The Bible never said that. The Bible just said if you're married, respect your husband. And if you're married, you need to love your wife. And so you can't say, well, I'll love her when she's lovable. Well, you're not the expert and end-all discerner of lovable, are you? No. 
So a husband, here's, here's two, two ways to summarize all this. A husband honors God when he intentionally loves his wife. When he intentionally loves his wife. When he intentionally understands what she perceives as love. When a husband intentionally loves his wife, he honors God. Don't get overwhelmed and, 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 and with, with just take it at that. You don't have to do everything perfectly. I mean, just intentionally love your wife. A wife honors God when she intentionally, and here's the key to understanding this, I believe, appreciates her husband. I think the most helpful thing you can do to understand how to respect your husband is to understand the word appreciate. Because the best way that I've ever found to communicate this to couples is with the word appreciation. Husbands hear respect oftentimes, not exclusively, but oftentimes through appreciation. So rather than you thinking to yourself, well, I've got to respect my husband. You see, somehow in our vernacular, that sounds appreciate, appreciate, appreciate. Think about, just think about the world in which you're trying to honor God in your marriage in. The culture, the, the, the books that we read, the movies that we watch, the, the things that we, the way TV shows spin it out, the way everything that we, we, we think when we think about a love story. We live in this culture that is completely obsessed with falling in love. It's obsessed with every, everywhere you look, it's something about falling in love. But we're utterly ill-equipped for staying in love. Everything is, is revolving around falling in love. But once you fall in love, well, think about it. There's hundreds and hundreds of organizations, websites, apps for your phone to help you fall in love. But how many, how many organizations and websites and apps are there for your phone to help you stay in love? I mean, we're just obsessed with falling in love. But don't you think we ought to stop a minute and think, wait a second. Falling in love is the easy part. Staying in love is what we need to be thinking about, is what we need to be talking about, is what we need to be focused on. And finally, I would just say this. I suppose in my heart as I prayed for you and I thought about all the things I'd say this morning that I can never know all of the unique situations and circumstances that exist in a room this size. But I can know some things. The things that God tells me are true. And then I can know some things that I just know are true because we all know they're true. And so if you're maybe just pushing back a little bit, then I hope this will help you. You know, you know, and have known for a long time that there is not a single area of your life that you can neglect and see improvement. 
Life just doesn't work that way. If you neglect your health, it's going to deteriorate. If you neglect your yard, it's going to deteriorate. If you neglect your car, it's going to deteriorate. And if you neglect your life, you're not going to see improvement. If you neglect your relationships, you're not going to see improvement. in it. So here's what I would ask you this morning. What, what? Is there anything in your life that you've been neglecting? Is there anything that's important to you? That when I said that, you, you thought to yourself and you realized, wait a second. I subconsciously have been living as if just because things seem to be okay, that they're going to stay okay. But nothing in life works that way. Your marriage certainly doesn't work that way. Your life doesn't work that way. You see, if you neglect your life, if, you, if you're just living, do you, do you just get to the end of a week, here it's another Sunday, tomorrow it's another Monday, and it's gonna, you're going to get up and here you're going to go back again through this routine. What are you doing? What, what are you doing? Are you driving to work on Monday morning and you're thinking to yourself, what am, what am I doing? What, why, why am I doing this? What is, is this just this, this cycle round and round of, of endless nothing just going around? Or is there meaning and purpose? Is there intentionality and is there reason behind? Are you, are you paying attention to things? Have you addressed your own spiritual condition, your, your mortality, the fact that you have been created by God for a purpose and a reason. He, he made you to glorify Him. And maybe the reason why you're, you're, you're not connecting with that and it's just a day followed by a day is because that's not what God made you for. And just because you feel like you're, you're okay sometimes, and then you wake up one day and you realize, I'm not okay. And I haven't been okay for a long time. Don't sit in church Sunday after Sunday and neglect things that matter. Address who am I? Why do I exist? What is my purpose in this life? Don't neglect your relationship with God. Don't neglect your relationship with your spouse. Don't neglect your relationship with your kids. Don't neglect what's important. Because it's never going to improve. Never. We have to be intentional. Which means when we get to this moment in the service, there's always this intentional moment. And in a moment, I'm going to say, stand up. And then I'm going to invite you to come forward. I'm going to invite you to intentionally come forward. You can intentionally walk up here and you can, you can look me in the eye or you can take Pastor Brian's hand and you can say, I, I need to make some, some changes. I need to, I need to intentionally 
deal with my relationship with God. And whatever that is, you need to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. You need to do that. You can't just keep letting days go by. You need to follow Him. If you haven't been baptized, you're walking in disobedience to Him. You're on one hand saying, I'm a Christian, He's my Lord. But on another hand saying, but I'm not going to do the first and main thing He told me to do after I become a Christian. And the truth is, with regards to marriage, the truth is, if I say right now, if I say, husbands, why don't you... Why don't you just grab your wife in a minute when we stand up, just, just grab her by the hand or, or grab hold of her or walk her down the front or kneel down at the altar and just pray for her and thank God for her. Fear just sets in your heart like I'm, I'm asking you to grab a rattlesnake. <laughs> but if I said, if I said, Maybe today, wives, why don't you grab your husband? He wants to, but he's, he's hesitant. You just grab hold of him. Just tell him, I'm just grateful that you're my husband. I appreciate you. I'm thankful for you. I know that sometimes it can be hard. Pray for him. Don't neglect what matters. Let's stand and bow our heads.